Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. You're on Team Human, Conscious Intervention in the Machine. This is not conspiracy theory, but the heart of the conspiracy itself. We are the not-so-secret society, breathing together in the real world. you found the others. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and I'm on Team Human. Playing for Team Human today, New York Magazine editor and author of the new book, The Uninhabitable Earth, David Wallace Wells. Being scared can be motivating. We can see... You know, the movement against cigarette smoking, against nuclear proliferation, against drunk driving. These are all public health campaigns, and I do think that the public health aspect of climate change is something that has been underutilized by advocates of it. David will be showing us how we must confront imminent catastrophe head-on if we're going to do what's necessary to evade extinction. It's not too late to face reality and intervene on our own behalf. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and you're on Team Human. I took my daughter to see a Broadway play this week. For those of you who've been listening to Team Human for a while, you may know that I have a complicated relationship with theater. It was everything to me for a number of decades, from the time I was 11 to about 33. And I just loved the way theater gave permission for people to tell the truth, to reframe issues in ways that can penetrate ignorance or prejudice, to pay tribute to human collaboration through the very cooperative act the theater represents, not just between the actors on stage, but between the actors and the audience. I remember as a kid, I was just amazed that people in the audience didn't simply stand up in the middle of the play and and scream. By my late 20s, though, I grew pretty exasperated with theater. The high prices of tickets kept most live theater really aimed at the elite. And I was looking at directing a production, I remember, of uh, Three Penny Opera for a regional theater. And the tickets 
the cheapest tickets were going to be 40 bucks. And worse, because it was all these high-paying patrons who made theater really work, the work itself tended less toward waking people up to social injustice and economic inequality than simply making people feel better about the social injustice that they were perpetrating, as if attending the play were itself some kind of penance. I remember I was standing in the lobby during the intermission of a play I had been directing, and I used to always go to the lobby during intermission just to sample the audience response. And I heard these two women talking about the AIDS crisis, and one of them, I remember she said, oh, yes. I saw the play. So sad. (laughs) She was talking about angels in America, as if being able to cry for a gay person was some sort of test, and she had passed. That the play didn't, it didn't spur her to take action, but to feel better about her inaction. And besides, at the time, the theater was, was giving way, really, to the internet, which was promising this way more interactive, bottom-up, egalitarian, non-commercial people's medium. And for me, anyway, the rest is history. The net turned out to be an even greater distraction from the business at hand. And here I am talking about how to return to embodied local human experiences. The thing I keep wondering about, though is whether we have time for any of this right now. As the conversation we're going to have about climate change today will make clear, we are in an all-hands-on-deck moment. And I fear that instead of asking what needs to be done, most of us, we're asking, how can what I already love to do be directed toward accomplishing what needs to be done? How can my pottery, my mathematics, my yoga instruction, my miniature golf course design, my puppetry, my sound design, my narrativity, whatever that means, how can that all be geared toward making the world a place where humans and millions of other species don't have to go extinct? Rather than asking, what can I do right now to prevent topsoil depletion, to reduce plastic containers or jet fuel consumption, which sound like more direct action for an all-hands-on-deck moment. I have friends and relatives actually purchasing shotguns to keep just in case, yet they're just still working at their jobs and hoping for the best. But I went and saw this musical, this Come From Away, just because my daughter's middle school teacher said she simply had to see it. And I gotta say, it really touched me. It was about the people of Gander, which is this small town in Newfoundland, Canada, that happened to have a big old disused airport that welcomed about 7,000 passengers who were grounded when the airspace was closed after the 9-11 attacks on the U.S. And the play itself is super simple. It's this musical about how they got beds ready in the public school and tried to take care of all the confused and traumatized people. But it was a really emotional ride. All these normal, basic, socially responsible behaviors elicited tears from a whole lot of people there. And I sat there thinking about the moment of goodwill following 9-11, that sense of possibility, even before the possibility for a teaching moment on the limits of empire, just the normal response of people to the misfortune of others. 
And it seemed like a different world from the one we're living in today. And I thought about my daughter growing up in a moment where those behaviors appear strange and old-fashioned, like from another time, which it was. And in fact, the play works precisely because things are so different right now. It's less a piece about that moment than, at least in contrast, about ours. But it's, it's also a lesson in the way the recognition and acknowledgement of a crisis can motivate people to act. It can bring us out of our daily trance and give us a chance to become part of a mission greater than ourselves. And sure, that could mean, like in this play, just playing fiddle to entertain people who are worried about their loved ones in New York or today, I don't know, doing puppet shows for refugees or developing non-extractive currencies for exploited African villagers or even making a podcast that people really need to hear and get to stay on deck themselves. But I think we have to be really careful just how far from the impulse that original impulse to do good that we get. You know, when I when I think of Danielle Buten, who's a guest that we had on a couple of years ago, she gathers unused medical supplies and ships them to Africa, employing dozens of people with autism and other challenges to work in her warehouse. That's when I see someone engaged in unequivocally direct action. Or our friends at Extinction Rebellion, or people growing and making food as responsibly as possible, spending more time and energy or making less short-term profit in order to rest the soil or limit runoff. Or an author choosing to write a book that is aimed at nothing other than waking people up to the catastrophe in progress as clearly and urgently as possible. Like a doctor telling an alcoholic his liver cannot go on this way. This is important work. Like all the slightly indirect things that most of us are doing. But I think it's time for all of us who've adapted our work to the current crisis to remember that we must also adapt ourselves to the actual work that needs to be done. All hands on deck. I'm Astrid Taylor, and I'm on Team Human. I'm Frances Morlapay, and I'm on Team Human. I'm Gail Brabrook, I'm from Extinction Rebellion, and I'm also on Team Human. You're on Team Human, coming to you alive from the Basement Media Squad in the Laboratory for Digital Humanism at Queens College and online at teamhuman.fm. Our guest today, journalist and author of The Uninhabitable Earth, David Wallace Wells. Before we get into the facts of climate change, do we tell a hopeful story or do we need to scare people into awareness first? Well, my basic perspective is it's too big a story to tell in any one way. So um, I think that climate change journalism, storytelling, advocacy has really suffered for a long time because people tried to put all the stories into one box, which is this sort of like, it, you know, optimistic, hopeful box. Um, as a reader, I never really responded to that. I sort of took the cue that that meant that our technocratic leaders were going to kind of take care of it, and it didn't require much, if anything, of me politically. Mm -hmm. And um, I really sort of was shaken out of that complacency by fear. And I intuited that probably there would be a lot of other people like me who would be motivated and mobilized by fear. But I wouldn't want to say that 
that either should be the only way that we talk about it. I think that right. um, you know we. It's it's an all for me. It's an all encompassing story. There's nowhere on the planet you can escape it. No kind of person who will live outside of its impact, even if you're a quite wealthy person, you know, living a quite buffered life. And I think that's one of the reasons that the California wildfires have been so powerful as teaching tools. Is when we see the Kardashians and we see Rupert Murdoch have their homes threatened, we realize. No matter who you are, this is going to come for you in some form. If they even accept that it was climate change that led to any of that, yeah. But I think anybody who's lived in California—I mean, in particular in California for a while—like they can see those trend lines. So I just wrote a piece for New York Magazine about LA and wildfire in particular, and you know, I talked to Eric Garcetti, the mayor of LA. He's 48 years old. The year he was born, 60,000 acres of wild of forest burned in California. The year he was elected mayor in 2013, it was 600,000. The year he was re-elected mayor in 2017, it was 1.2 million, and last year it was 1.9 million. It's incredible. I mean, and my experience out there was really interesting. Maybe it's something we talk about a little bit later, but、um, namely in that, like, I came out there as an East Coaster who was not. I can't still get my head around the idea that weather, that fire is weather, and I thought I would go out there and hear from all these people who are like. In the grips of total apocalyptic panic and thinking my whole way of life is unsustainable,、right. and I really found much more like a case study in normalization. Everybody was like, "We've dealt with fires before; these are worse, but we'll adapt." And I was thinking, you know, the scientists say it's probably going to get at least twice as bad by 2050, probably four times as bad. And by the end of the century, there's good science that says it could get 64 times as bad, which would mean three quarters of the state of California would be burning every single year. This is not. What you know from the past—it's something、right. totally different. But everybody out there was really already adjusting, normalizing, and sort of becoming complacent again. Which I think,、right. big picture, is a kind of a tells us a story about how we will all adapt to a world that is really transformed by ch- climate change. We we look at the terrifying outcomes at three degrees, at four degrees, and we think we sh- we would never conscience that kind of life, and yet probably we will get there. And probably at that point, we will be consciencing all of that suffering.、Right. We will be turning away from some of it, you know,、um, explaining it away when we don't look away from it, and、uh, in other ways, sort of normalizing it. And I think, on some level, that's like one of the great tragedies of this whole story is that、um, these outcomes that we now consider completely unacceptable will probably, in short order, become quite normal. And you can see that based on how we've adjusted to climate change already. And that happens a lot, though. I mean, you could look at something as simple as automobiles. Say, okay, in the you know 1920s and 30s, you know, when GM starts dismantling the streetcars, there were people writing about, well, look, these are really dangerous vehicles. People are going to get run over. We're going to have to get oil for them. If they could see then that we would have oil wars and pollution and car accidents and uh, uh, you know this exurbanization of America, all from the automobile. We wouldn't have done that either. And I mean, it gets to this really interesting question of why it is that we're not processing these facts that we do know about、right. what climate is bringing. Because, you know, there were people in the past who were doomsayers about many things, and most of the time they don't get listened to. I know. I just reread、um, for a whole other reason.、Um, Rachel Carson. Yeah. It's all. It's all there. Yeah. I mean, she's really incredible, and I think she's an interesting case study in this. Question that you open with about fear, because when that book came out, it was called hyperbolic. It was called fear mongering. It was called, you know, maybe they didn't use the word apocalyptic, but that was a quite、right. um, common response. It was actually kind of 
panned by most of the reviewers. Right, but it was followed up by Web of Web of Life, was yeah. it? And and Diet for a Small Planet. Yeah. So they were positive versions of yeah. Silent Spring as well. But even that book, I mean, it's often credited single-handedly for the yeah. ban on DDT, which it deserves. Often also credited largely for the creation of the EPA. And mm -hmm. you know, I think that that's a lesson for all of us that like being scared can be motivating. And we don't need to look at that and think about it. We don't need to look at Rachel Carson to see that. We can see, you know, the movement against cigarette smoking, against nuclear proliferation, against drunk driving. These are all public health campaigns. And I do think that the public health aspect of climate change is something that has been underutilized by advocates of it. But in general, these are all campaigns, advocacy campaigns, that leaned on fear and worked as a result. The movement we've seen on politics of climate just over the last nine months is really remarkable, really fast moving. I mean, we'll see where it ends up. We'll see what policy changes it um, leads to. Huge open question, of course. And those people are fighting tough battles with entrenched interests and all that. But these movements, you know, Greta Thunberg and the climate strike in, in the EU, Extinction Rebellion, Rebellion in, in the UK, Sunrise here in the US and the Green New Deal and AOC, all of that stuff started with that UN report from last October, which was, I mean, you know, to anyone who had been following climate, um, not it didn't contain any news. It was just looking at what the science said about the difference between a world that was 1.5 degrees warmer and a world that was 2 degrees warmer. Um, I think personally, 2 degrees is about our best case scenario. So it wasn't even like an alarmist report in what it contained. But the rhetoric of how it was presented to the world was much more urgent, much more demanding of the public than anything like it before. And I don't think it's any kind of coincidence that right. in the aftermath of that turn towards more alarmism, we've seen a completely unprecedented public response. Now, again, that's not to say like alarmism is the only way to talk about this issue, but I think for a generation or so, we really left that tool on the table. The thing about the UN report, even though it's, it's framed as if it's the opposite, the UN report is actually framed as, this is our best case scenario. Yeah. You know, because I heard the Republicans were saying, oh, you know, that we're tired of everyone using worst case scenario figures. And I was like, no, 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 no. This was actually the most conservative estimate you could make. Yeah. I mean, the tragedy is that 30 years ago, it would have been a quite reasonable target. And now we've just dithered for so long that it's now our best case scenario. Right. I know. And then I go back, and you know, not that I particularly love everything about Al Gore, because I think he is kind of sold out. And there's so many uh, uh, commercial VC entanglements yeah. that if he had just settled for being a guy who's got $10 million in the bank and do all this as a nonprofit, it would be, I just have such an easier pill to swallow yeah. than watching the billionaires get rich off it. But I look at Bush, Bush v. Gore oh as God. the moment that we kind of... Think about how different, not just American history, but world history would be. There's a person who, you know, he's got two issues, the internet and climate change. And yeah. he's like, we can't, we can't find a way to make him president. And to think that he must be, I mean, it's t to me, again, it's, it's, another, it's just another tragedy of this. But, you know, if, we, if he had been elected 2000. Well, if he had been, uh, uh, right. gotten, gotten his job. <laughs> right, totally. Um, if, you know, if we had started globally cutting carbon emissions in the year 2000, we would have had to cut them about 3% per year to avoid two degrees of warming, which is actually, would, be, would have been difficult, but doable. We're now at a point where we have to cut them by about 10% per year to cut to two degrees, and that's even harder. And if we wait another decade, it'll be 30%. So we're like, we're really, you know, we're really digging ourselves an enormously deep hole. And, you know, I was just looking at a, um, a breakdown of, you know, I write in the book, 
last 30 years have produced half of all the carbon emissions that we've produced in the entire history of humanity. So we think of this often as a long building problem that began in the Industrial Revolution. In fact, it's incredibly rapid. But if you get um, past 1992 um, or 1990, when that cutoff sort of starts, <clears throat> we've had a quarter of all emissions in the history of humanity happen since an inconvenient truth in 2007. We are now producing every 10 years as much carbon emissions as we've produced in the entire 200 plus first years of industrialization. That's how rapidly we're polluting, damaging, destroying the planet. You know, individuals are a little bit stuck on what's the right course. And I guess what you'd say is there's a multiplicity of right courses. But it's like, what to do? Do I get us leave the city, join a CSA? Do I go further into the city and start doing rooftop and vertical agriculture? Do I join the Green New Deal and, and fight for you know, the government uh, and national interests to do stuff? Or do I give up on nation states you know, being able to defend the environment and their own sovereignty at the same time and promote local revolutions? Yeah. I mean, my feeling is I think people should live their values. If they want to shrink their carbon footprint, they should do that. And the ways to do that are, you know, not complicated. Just like electric car, travel less, change your diet a bit. Individual action is important at that level so that people don't feel like they're um, living in hypocrisy. It's important to signal to policymakers and to other people that you can live prosperous, fulfilling lives and still be responsible. But ultimately, I start from the supposition, which is not a supposition, is too weak a word for it. It's a fact. In order to stabilize the world's climate at any point, even at a hellish four or five degrees, in order to stabilize it, we don't just need to reduce our carbon. We need to zero it out entirely. If at four degrees we're still producing even a fraction of the carbon that we're producing now, we will be continuing to heat the planet additionally. So if we need to zero it out and probably in relatively short order, that means that the actions of you and I and every like-minded person in the entire country doing their maximal best to shrink their own carbon footprint simply isn't sufficient to the problem. You know, if you think about air travel, everyone in the U.S. never got on another plane again. That would not zero out carbon emissions. If everyone in the entire West never got on a plane again, that would not zero out carbon emissions from air travel because there'd be people elsewhere in the world who want to fly. Um, what we need to do to zero out emissions from air travel is to figure out a zero carbon alternative to jets. That means either jets that are quite like the ones that we have today, but are flying on electricity that's powered by um, renewable Some energies. Yeah. Um, that technology seems quite far away, but it's conceivable. Some kind um, of big droney things. Well, or just like, you know, using the Tesla model and yeah. like building a plane around it. And they have done that. They have flown planes across I don't remember if it's the Atlantic or the Pacific, um, powered entirely by electricity, but it's like a single pilot plane. Right, it's not like a big 747. bicycle, yeah. Totally. But um, it's probably quiet. <laughs> totally. You know, alternately, we yeah. could have um, zero carbon jet fuel, and there is technology um, technologists who are engaged in exactly this project of producing fuel that is quite like the fuel that we have today, but because of how the way it's made, basically through carbon capture, ends up being zero carbon. And... Same with diet. You know, you and I and everyone we know could go vegan, right? But like there are 7 billion, 7.5 billion people on the planet. And unless you think that in the next 20 or 30 years, the entire planet is going to be made to go vegan entirely, then we need to figure out 
a different way of raising animal protein, and it's not just animal protein, it's also all of agriculture, different ways of raising our crops that don't impose a carbon footprint on the right. future. Or eating crickets and stuff. And that, to me, those, the, the scale of that challenge, it's yeah. the same question really as the storytelling question you, you asked at the beginning. It's too big a story to tell in any one way. It's too big a problem to solve in any one way. We need huge solutions, which to me are a, a huge variety of very big solutions, each of which has to happen at the level of policy. And I have the same disillusionment with um, much of our politics as I think you might. And I think, you know, things are inert. They're slow moving. Even when there's progress like there's been on climate over the last year, it's so slow. It's so much slower than the well, U.S. Well, we have we an administration that is, is steadfastly opposed to even recognizing climate uh, Yeah, I mean, my own issue. feeling about that is that um, as Americans, we're a little bit narcissistic about American, the American role in this. And as liberals, we're a little bit um, quick to shift all of the responsibility onto Republicans in the sense that, you know, in America, fossil fuel interests are evil. They are evil everywhere around the world. The Republican Party, totally evil in the way that they've been bought out by fossil fuel interests completely. And yet, you look around the world at governments that are far to the left of the U.S., far more green in their rhetoric than the U.S., um, you know, none of them basically are doing better <clears throat> on carbon than we are. And, you know, the U.K. is doing a little bit better, actually, and that's they're, they're sort of a reason for optimism. When that's lately, and that's also because they don't have a, a, the ocean air over yeah. London and every, no one can even, you're not even supposed to ride your bike to work anymore in London. Yeah. And, you know, that's, there, there are changes afoot really throughout Europe. I mean, I was yeah. excited to see Amsterdam is going to be banning cars. Um, I think it was by 2025 in any event sort of soon. Um, but when I, when I pull back and I see the U.S. is only 15% of global emissions and no party in any country in the world is as <clears throat> captive to fossil fuel interests as the Republican Party in the U.S. Right. has. And yet, basically, no, no nation in the world is on track to meet its commitments under Paris. No nation in the world is anywhere close to the kind of decarbonization that we need to avoid this two-degree warming level, which scientists call the threshold of catastrophe, island nations of the world call genocide, and I think is basically our best-case scenario. Right. So when you take that into account, you know, I, for many reasons, not exclusively climate, I th wish that Donald Trump was um, out of office and the Republican Party was entirely disempowered, perhaps even like disemboweled. But um, I also think that we are a little um, quick to think that the problem is like a cancer that we can just extract right. and not understand that we all live as beneficiaries of a carbon economy. It's structural. Yeah. It's not just a carbon economy. It's a carbon uh, industrial landscape that we're yeah. living on. I basically feel in general that our main obligation on this issue is political and that like we should be devoting our, ourselves as intensely to rallying um, political energy towards dramatic change um, because the change that we need is too big to achieve at the individual level. It has to come through policy. But yeah, flying is really, flying is really fucked up. You know, a round trip ticket from New York to LA is the same as eight months of driving. A round-trip ticket, every round-trip ticket from New York to London melts three square meters of Arctic ice. Every seat on every one of those planes melts three square meters of Arctic ice, which sounds horrifying until you realize every American, the average American, emits enough carbon every year now to melt 10,000 tons of ice. Every 
single American. Now, there's a lot of ice up there, but that is really significant damage. Um, and each of us are doing that ourselves, even if we're not flying to London right. every six weeks. And that ice, when it melts, it's not going into the aquifers, right? Yeah. <laughs> it's just melting into the ocean where it's salinating or whatever. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, the, the most immediate thing that's, that concerns me is, you know, they, they call it the albedo effect. So at the moment, there's all this white, mostly at the, you know, in the South Pole, but a little bit in the North Pole. Ice is white <clears throat> when it's above water, reflects sunlight back at the sun. When that ice is diminished or, you know, um, let's I hope this doesn't happen anytime soon, but disappeared entirely, then instead of white there, it'll be dark blue. And as you know, when you get hot wearing a black shirt in summer, anything that's dark absor absorbs more heat and reflects less heat, which right. means that um, at the moment, we're already, like that ice is basically combating climate change in a way by reflecting some sunlight into the atmosphere. And if we don't have it, then we'll just be absorbing it and the planet will get all that much hotter, all that much more quickly. Um, in addition to opening up new shipping lanes in the Arctic that the Russians are going to be competing with the Chinese and the Americans for and all the kind of geopolitical intrigue of what that entails, which is, you know, a part of the story, I think. Um, probably those impacts are going to be as profound as the direct scientific climate ones in the sense that, like, I'm a child of the 90s. I grew up in New York in the 90s. I would have argued with you as a teenager if you told me that, like, markets were a pure force for good and globalization, like, was, like... Uh, a map of progress. I knew that those were complicated things. And yet, at a kind of emotional, intuitive level, I did believe that the future would be brighter than the past. The myth of liberalism. And now I'm like, I don't even know how to organize my orientation towards the future, thinking that that is, at the very least, a much more precarious proposition. Right. And maybe even a foolish one. And I think that that kind of base basic psychological, intellectual um, scrambling will really be coming for all of us in the next decade or two as we see so much more disarray brought about by climate change. I mean, it hits down to the totally personal level, too. I mean, you've got a baby. I'm assuming you brought the baby into the world consciously. Was there, did you have thoughts? Well, <laughs> I would say concerns. You know, I would say honestly that a big part of it was uh, delusion and denial and complacency. That, um, and I think that that's honestly, a, I mean, it, it teaches me a couple of things. The first is how deep our reflexes to live in denial are. That I could have been spending several years neck deep in the science, knowing everything that I know, trying to be as rigorous and honest as I could be in taking stock of the scary science. And yet still, when it came to decisions in my personal life, basically moving, uh, like setting my work life aside and like thinking about my family life in independent terms. I think that's a sign of just how deep those impulses are and as a result, just how serious we all need to be about taking seriously that science. Because if we don't really force ourselves to stare at it directly, and deeply, I think we'll all fall back into those reflexes of complacency. Um, but that's not to say that I was you know, doing it entirely sociopathically or selfishly or narcissistically. I mean, I thought about it enough that I have a reasoned perspective on it. But I can't say honestly that that 
I decided to have a child. My wife and I decided to have a child after having hashed out these yeah. um, thoughts. It's more that we wanted to have a child and thought our way to a place where we could feel okay about that. And in general with politics, I think we all have an obligation to fight for the kind of life that we want to lead and the life that we want our loved ones to have rather than giving up before that story has been written. Right. And that is the place that we are on climate right now. You know, when right. I talk- You're saying it's not a done deal. And in the book, too, you say that the, the, the human story is not written, that we can, we can take charge of this narrative. I mean, we're in charge of it, actually. You know, the reason that the climate yeah. is changing is because of the carbon that humanity is producing. It is very simple. Humanity has its hands on those levers. We can change the position of those levers. We can reduce our carbon output if we wanted to. We could even hopefully zero it out in relatively short order. Now, there are a ton of also human obstacles to making that happen. But ultimately, it is a story that we're in control of. And I hear from, you know, maybe they're not climate deniers exactly, but climate skeptics relatively often who say, this isn't man-made. This isn't anthropogenic. What we're going through is a natural yeah. um, cycle. And to them, I say two things. The first is, there have been natural cycles of this in the past, but we're already entirely outside the window of temperatures that enclose all of human history, which means that humans did not evolve under the climate conditions that you and I are living under now. We didn't develop agriculture and civilization under these climate conditions. We didn't develop modern life under these climate conditions. And all the things that we take for granted about modern life are contingent on those climate conditions, which are now disappeared. It's as though we've landed on an entirely new planet and are trying to figure out what of the culture that we've brought with us mm -hmm. can endure and what won't. Um, so it should be terrifying. It should also be terrifying that if there have been five previous episodes of dramatic climate change in the Earth's history, brought about by four of them brought about by uh, greenhouse gases, that all of those produced what were called mass extinctions, which killed off, in one case, as much as 95 or 97% of all life on Earth. So if you're trying to convince yourself that like it's all okay because this has happened before, those are two very strong arguments for it not being right. okay. Well, it's all okay for life itself. You know, well, but only a fraction. Yeah. I mean, if we're going to end up with really only 3% of right. life enduring. But the phenomenon of life, if this is the only planet that got liveness, the phenomenon of life will probably eke something out, even if it's just plankton. Something. But from my perspective, and I'm a little bit of a, you know. You're I'm, a romantic for, I, I'm for also, civilization. I'm also, uh, you know, I'm a human chauvinist. Mammals. I'm a human yeah. chauvinist in Me the too. sense that, like, team human. When, yeah. I, yeah. Yeah. when I look at the future of, of, of a future of the planet with plankton is the only life, I don't think that that's a positive outcome. I mean, right. there are some. No, it's not. There are some people on like on the fringe environmental left who like do take solace. Yeah, in that. I know. There's one, but I've had people critique Team Human, saying, "Why are you so human centric? Yeah, yeah celebrating humans. They're the ones who screwed it all up." Well, I mean, it's a totally true yeah. critique, but also. You know, I am I, I am chauvinistic in that way. I do value human life more than I value animal, animal life. If I could preserve the whole biosphere, I would. But if I had to make choices, I would prioritize human life. And yeah. I, I don't think that that's an unusual or unreasonable perspective. No, it's basically you're on team human. You yeah. can't help me because you're a human. Yeah. But to get back to the earlier point, like, you know, um, when, they, when, when deniers or skeptics say to me, this is, non, this is not human caused, I say, if you really think this is not human caused, you should be so much more scared, not less scared, 
Because if we're really on this course that's bringing us towards mass extinction and changes of temperature that are going to bring, you know, palm trees to the Arctic and make the equatorial band of the planet totally unlivable in the space of, you know, a lifetime, the fact that we are not in control of that should fucking terrify you. It should be ultimately a comfort, in fact, even sort of empowering to remember that we are the ones doing this. So when we talk about the really, really harrowing climate impacts that are possible, and just to run through a few to give your listeners a sense, you know, we're on track for about four degrees, 4.3 degrees of warming by the end of the century. Economists estimate that that would mean a global GDP 20 to 30% smaller than it would be without climate change, which is an impact that's twice as deep as the Great Depression, it would be permanent. It would mean a total of climate damages totaling $600 trillion, which is more than double all the wealth that exists in the world today. It would mean parts of the planet could be hit by six climate-driven natural disasters at once. It would mean at least several hundred million, probably a billion climate refugees. It would mean twice as much war because there's a relationship between temperature and conflict. It would mean agricultural yields that were only half as bountiful as they are today. We'd be trying to feed probably half as many more people. Um, but if, and, and those can be, those seem so terrifying. There's such huge impacts. And yet, they are ultimately a reflection of our power over the climate. Because if we get there, it will be because of what we do collectively. Um, it will be because we continue to emit more and more carbon and don't make any adjustments. Um, so, and if we do get there, ultimately it will be our responsibility. We will have made that happen. And that's one of the reasons that I'm so focused on this question of the villainy of the bad actors and their responsible, their relative responsibility, because I certainly, in the same way that climate change is going to impact the world in really divergent ways, such that the global south, is, well, it's already being hit very hard, but it will get hit much more intensely in the decades ahead than the, than the west. It's also the case that we, that responsibility is distributed unequally and people like the fossil fuel companies and the Republican Party are more responsible for sure. But I also think that, like, we need to, if all that we're doing is pointing the finger, I think that that puts us into some um, uncomfortable situations. And I would much rather have a collectivist, like, let, is, let us take the steering wheel that sits in front of us and drive this car rather than let's throw Rex Tillerson in jail. Right. Um, uh, I think that that is a, and I think, honestly, that's the, that's, um, the politics that we've had over the last year, over the last nine months, to me, have moved very much in that direction. You know, like, we're still doing divestment. That's important. But, like, the policy proposals that are being put forward, British Parliament declaring a climate emergency, the Green New Deal, you know, the government of Indonesia saying they can have their carbon emissions by 2030 and still grow by 6% per year. All of these are ambitious assumptions of collective responsibility, at least at the national level. And I'm worried about how that works out on an international scale because I do think that there there's a real collective action problem where every nation, even nations led by people who are really worried about climate, have a kind of incentive to slow walk action and let others clean up the mess. Right. Um, but I'm really heartened to see that in the U.S. at least, in the U.K., in the E.U., and a few other places around the world, we do seem to be approaching the issue um, more through the spirit of collective responsibility and less through the spirit of um, vilifying. As villainous as those people are, I think that it can be a little bit distracting from the main issue, which is like, we got to decarbonize. Right. But now we got, you know, China and India, which is just developing a middle class, and they all want refrigerators and air conditioners yeah. and all that good stuff. 
Well, that dilemma to me was much sharper even just five years ago because um, the rate of improvement in renewable technology is was unforeseen even by the people who were its biggest advocates a decade or two ago. The price has fallen dramatically. The amount of renewables that we're generating is much farther ahead <clears throat> than where we thought we'd be. And you know, England is now, it's been on something like 40 straight days where they haven't had any coal power. Um, powering their electric grid, which is incredible. Renewables are already, in most of the world, cheaper than dirty energy, and they will become so everywhere in relatively right. short order. So it's possible. I mean, I guess this is the, the, the bane of the left right now. It's possible we can cure climate change without arresting capitalism. Well, that's, yeah. <laughs> I, mean, I think that's their nightmare. I think, you know what, on some level, it all depends on what you mean by capitalism. Yeah. I mean, um, I don't think that we can solve this problem with the kind of crony capitalistic setup that we have, maybe most intensely in the U.S., but really everywhere in the developed world where corporations play such an outsized role, fossil fuel corporations maybe even an especially outsized role. Um, I don't think that we can solve this problem without um, remodeling that system. The IMF, no left-wing organization, yeah. Just came out with a study that said that um, globally we are subsidizing the fossil fuel business 5.3 trillion dollars a year. Now that's a, the number is a little bit misleading because mostly that means that we aren't properly pricing the environmental cost of carbon. The right. direct direct subsidy is much smaller than that. But even taking that definition, you know, for a minute. Using the carbon capture technology we have now, which is just to pause for a second, these are machines that suck carbon out of the atmosphere and store it somehow that would mean it was no longer warming the planet. Just using the technology we have today without expecting any improvements in it or cost reductions, theoretically, we could completely neutralize the entire carbon footprint of the entire global economy. Everything that we do now, we wouldn't have to change at all if we just deployed these machines at scale for $3 trillion a year. So huh. looking at that equation, we're subsidizing fossil fuels at more than the cost than it would take to completely neutralize all of the damage that we're doing through carbon emissions globally. Now, again, it is more complicated than that because we need to store that carbon. We need to build an infrastructure to store it, which would probably have to be two or three times the size of today's oil and gas industry. We need to build the machines. We don't know where that money would come from. But it, I think it does give you conceptually actually a quite, um, not to be too neoliberal about it, but a quite um, obvious, at least first major step here, which is right. like, Some it's sort not of market driven. We just yes. subtract those subsidies, which are going to companies yeah. that many of which would not be profitable without them and which are secondarily poisoning the planet. And instead we direct them to the solutions. You know, maybe that won't get us all the way there, although this math equation says it would. But like that is itself a major, major step. And to your question, you know, that's not that's not undoing capitalism. That's making capitalism work. Right. Um, now, I have a lot of other problems with the way that contemporary capitalism is working, and I would like to see it reformed dramatically as well. But personally, I also come from a background where I think, you know, when you look at like the incredible wealth gains that have been attained in the developing world over the last generation. That's good. I do think that it's good that we have so many fewer people living in poverty, so many fewer people living, you know, so much less infant mortality, so much higher female educational attainment. 
And really, those are the creations of market forces and capitalism. Now, those gains have come at the cost of industrialization. They've produced a ton of carbon. I think that that, um, that will, you know, that sort of implicit dilemma or trade-off will is changing and will change where countries can now take a more responsible path out of poverty without imposing that cost on the future of the planet. But I, I don't look at those stories and think we need to... Um, we need to totally undo capitalism. I think we just need to remodel it in a way that works for the people who need those benefits most. So, if like the cost of excuse me, the cost of China obtaining middle classness is that millions of Chinese are breathing unbreathable air and dying every year, that's not good for them. But I also don't want to live in a world where we say no. Instead of growing at you know, 6% per year and pulling all of these hundreds of millions of people out of poverty over the span of a decade, we're going to ask you to grow at 3% per year and can resign, you know, have ask all those hundreds of millions of people who are still living in poverty to stay there for a while longer. I also don't want to live in that world. Um, so, you know, in this, in this way, I do take a lot of heart in that, that plan I mentioned a minute ago from Indonesia. This is a country, very kind of paradigmatic developing world story. Over the last two decades, they've halved their poverty rate, they've doubled their per capita income, but they've done that by industrialization, which has doubled their carbon emissions. But they say that they can have those emissions by 2030, which would put them ahead of their commitments under Paris, which again, no country in the world is currently on track for. It would, they would be ahead of those commitments. And they could grow still, they say, at 6% per year, which is faster than the 5% that they grew over the yeah. last two decades. To me, if that could really, be, if that could really happen, and I don't know the details of the Indonesian yeah. economy enough to judge it, but the government is saying it's plausible. If that's true, not just for Indonesia, but for much of the developing world, honestly, I feel like that's an incredible sign of hope and progress that right. like, we can offer the benefits of markets and globalization to these countries without burdening them and all of us with the incredible um, carbon problem. But when you look at a green future, do you see it being the result of a, mostly a return to sort of indigenous permaculture-like regenerative processes? Or do you see it as more like a kind of Bucky Fuller light technologies building, you know, vertical farm warehouses and domes in, you know, the city? You know, in general, I think I have hard time... I'm so, I have this idea of human progress so deeply encoded in me that I have a really hard time imagining true, like true reversal, where we are living on the planet, all the billions of us who are living on the planet, more in the way that people were living a thousand years ago than they were living right, 50 years ago. Right, 22nd century Pennsylvania Dutch, you know, commune. yeah. But I do think that some of those values will be growing a bigger part of the way that we live in what we still recognize as a modern world. So I think that, you know, the Amsterdam banning cars is like a good example. Like, I don't think Amsterdam in the year 2040 is going to seem like not a modern city. In fact, it might seem an especially modern city because it has no cars. Right. Um, or, you know, if we walk down the supermarket aisle and we're buying products that we see marked as carbon free, like that's along with the ones we see as carbon-free and GMO for whatever, um, you know, that's going to be, in a certain sense, a sign that we are importing some of these older values into the way that we live, but in a way that still is 
familiar as modern and contemporary. And I think that's probably true everywhere we look. I do think that like, you know, the um, agribusiness, the way that we do grow agriculture now is really problematic in a million ways. Um, and I do think that for a number of reasons, we're likely to see some adaptation away from industrial scale monocultural farming. Um, I think that'll be achieved in part through grassroots advocacy, in part through consumer preference, in part through policy you know, interventions. But I also think it's quite possible that many of those interventions are conducted by some of those same companies that are still ruining, you know, running our farms now. And um, that it's not going to be, as with everything else in this story, it's not going to be a binary thing where it's like, either we end up in a perfectly happy climate situation, everything's fine, or we end up in a climate hellscape. It's also, are there technical solutions or are there pre-modern solutions? It's it's everything all at once, right. um, at all parts of the spectrum at once. Again, that's how big the story is. It just requires those kinds of solutions everywhere. So it's, you know, I talk a lot about this, like, there are these small-scale studies that show that if you feed cattle seaweed, they cut their methane emissions by as much as 95 or 99%. Right. And methane emissions are the main reason why red meat is so bad for the planet. Now, those studies may not scale so well. It may affect the taste of the meat in ways that we don't like, uh, you know. But how do you think about that intervention? If we were to require all beef farmers to feed their cattle seaweed as part of their diet, is that like a techno intervention or is it like, um, is it is it sci-fi? Is it retrograde? Right. Did we know, find out that you know cave people were feeding their cows? Uh, yeah. Uh, seaweed. Or if we're like eating kelp on the you know yeah. for dinner. It's like, how do we think of that? Is that like crickets? Do, My neighbors are yeah. having cricket uh, pancakes now. On the way, they're trying to train themselves for the pop. Yeah. So they're eating cricket flour pancakes, high protein. I mean, they're saying crickets could be our future. Yeah. I mean, bugs have a lot of protein. Yeah. Kelp. I think if we don't lose them all now. Yeah. It's crazy. Well, that one's going down. I mean, it's hard to know. I can't, I don't know what to believe anymore, but uh, it looks like their population, at least in some some places, is, is going down. Yeah, I mean, I, I've, the numbers that I've seen for insect declines, they strike me as too high. I haven't looked at it, you know, I haven't spent a ton of time in it. Although I did, I did a piece a couple years ago about just um, honeybees, which is like uh, a part of this panic. And what I basically found in that story is, um, first of all, it's no mystery. Honeybees are dying because we're treating them in awful ways. We're busing them around the country on 18-wheeler tractor trailers where they're breathing in fumes. They're going from monocultural farm to monocultural farm, which means they're only eating one kind of a crop for a month at a time, then another kind of crop. They're not living naturally. And on top of that, all of those farms that they're um, pollinating are being sprayed with pesticides. Right. And they're, these they're are insects. Right. So. <laughs> they're eating Roundup. Yeah. But even more than that, it's like, so I saw these, these you know, these every year there was, a, it was like 70% of colonies died last year. 50% of colonies died last year. 42%, 82%. And it's like, I just, my math brain was like, if that happened, shouldn't there be no bees anymore? Maybe down to 1% by now. <laughs> but yeah. like every year the, the beekeepers are just able to rebreed and it's built into the business model. So it's both... Not surprising and not alarming. Um, the insect oh, the bats, though, that oh, yeah. upsetting. The, the insect, the insect stuff, more generally, I think, is more concerning. Yeah. Um, in part because those studies have been done in nature preserves where insects are not um, subjected to any of these same pressures that I'm talking about yeah. with bees. On the other hand, to to have noticed declines in two or three places around the world, I don't think is the same as imagining that the whole world is in decline. Right. And we'll see. 
Um, I do think it's almost certainly the case that insects are in decline to some degree. Um, but if it's 20% or 70%, that makes a big difference. Uh, I'm getting invited to these, I don't even know what you call them, retreats or workshops hosted by wealthy people who, you know, the, the stockbroker from here, the billionaire from there, who now see that there's a problem. And they are looking for almost like Esalen-like spiritual experiences, these sort of personal transformations through which they can then become the leaders of climate change or remediation and global fixing, just the way they've been the leaders of everything else. And I get, I can't even, I can't even stay, even if I'm being paid, I can't manage to stay at one of these for the whole day because I get so angry and I start telling them to stop being leaders, just be followers. Or if you need a personal transformation, self-actualization experience, go to Esalen and have that, but don't confuse that yeah. with coming to the table and helping to work on this. And they're arguing that I'm being too harsh, that the real thing, what, what we're looking at now is a, a, we need to make a cultural change to the human experience of reality in order to, to move into this next phase of cooperation and collaboration. Do we or can we just support AOC and, and get the Green New Deal started? My feeling about, about those millionaires and billionaires <clears throat> is that ultimately what they're looking for is absolution. They feel guilty. And I think it's one reason why Jeff Bezos wants to go to Mars is because he understands in a way that like even angry working people may not, that his wealth is just immoral. Right. Um, he maybe understands that fact better than they do, which is why he wants to leave the whole planet behind. Um, and I think the same dynamic is somewhat at play on climate. On the other hand, if Bill Gates is going to donate a ton of money to R&D, that's good. And if, you're, if they're inviting you to these conferences and retreats where you're yelling at them, that's good too. It would be better if you're there yelling at them than if you weren't there. <laughs> no, honestly, because, you know, we need solutions at every level, support from every corner. That's the scale of the challenge we face. You know, the UN says, the UN is not radical on this. The UN is quite conservative on this. And they say, in order to avert catastrophic warming, we need a global, we need to have our emissions by 2030, which would require a global World War II scale mobilization that would start this year. We don't have time, in my view, to totally transform the system and then make that happen. We need to do both at once. And if that means drawing on the philanthropic gestures of billionaires and in exchange for some amount of maybe undue climate absolution, I personally would take that bargain. The most important thing to me is solving the problem, not adjudicating responsibility and guilt. Now, I understand that not everybody feels that way, and I understand even the intellectual legitimacy in saying, no, we must hold these people to account right. first. But if it's going to be, you know, a green climate brought to you by the Bass Brothers, 
you know, or the Koch brothers who yeah. go for it. Fine. Take yeah. it. Put your name on my hospital. Just build the friggin' hospital. Yeah, no, I mean, that's my feeling too. And it's, you know, it's interesting in the, um, in light of, you know, this Anand, Anand Gerardus book, Winners Take All. Yeah. <clears throat> he talks a lot about how the wealthy have used small, basically, in most cases, small amounts of <clears throat> philanthropy to essentially excuse their thievery, um, primarily at the level of tax avoidance. That like none of these people are paying any taxes, none of these companies are paying any taxes, and they donate some amount of money to a charity that they control, and they want to be held as conquering heroes as a result. And there is something really morally problematic to that, and I do wish that like Jeff Bezos paid his taxes, for sure. But also, if there is a path there that is going to liberate hundreds of billions, if not trillions of dollars every year directed towards saving the planet, you know, in the short term, I'm probably inclined like you are to just take that deal. Right. But what they, what they do have to realize is that economic inequality is a precursor to climate instability. Well, I, I, I mean, it's part a, of it, a precursor and a result. Right. I mean, I think that's one of the great tragedies of this whole story is that um, the poor are hit hardest always and they will be made more poor. That's true at the level of particular communities where in the Gulf Coast, it's the poor who are living in the face of hurricanes. It's true at the level of nations where the Southeast in the US, which is the poorest part of the country, is going to be hit most intensely by climate change. And it's true maybe most dramatically, most importantly, at the level of the global level, where you know the global South is going to be really, really punished by these forces so intensely that by the end of the century, if we don't change course, a recent paper that came out a few weeks ago estimated basically the entire equatorial band of the planet will have no possibility of economic growth at all by the end of the century. An, um, another paper that came out recently showed that many of those countries have already lost as much as 30 or 40 percent of their GDP over the last potential GDP gains over the last three decades because of the force of climate change. And right. there are people who speculate that the whole phenomenon of Islamic terrorism, and generally speaking, the social disarray in the Middle East is a result of the fact that warming has hit that region most already. And I think absolutely when we look forward, we have to keep these things in mind and do everything we can to mitigate the suffering of those who are most in t directly in the path. Um, and I think that climate reparations is a question that will become more front and center over the next generation as we start to ask questions about, you know, what is the responsibility of Britain, which invented the Industrial Revolution, to Bangladesh, its former colony, who is going to be underwater as a result of those right. fumes? Um, well, and you look at, I mean, when you look at the American answer, it's you build a wall, you know? Well, so these people, from, these people from Quito or wherever it yeah. is who are going to be in, in equatorial fires, are they're already starting up, you know, they're... they're, they're you know, and I guess we'll keep that open open to Canada so we can have their water and the melting glaciers. But uh, yeah, I mean, that's to me one of the most dispiriting things is like if you had to imagine a threat that was big enough to call into being a true network of global cooperation and brotherhood and sisterhood, climate change would be that threat. It's that big. It's that immediate. It's that all encompassing. And yet we're staring down this existential crisis at a time when we're also retreating from that, the networks that we have already. We're retreating right. from the UN. We're retreating from globalization for all its flaws. Um, still basically, 
I think, helpfully a positive sum view of thinking about how nations can work together. And we're becoming globally, not just in the U.S., much more nativistic, much more exactly. I feel like this oh, global open society reached a peak, you know, September 10th. Yeah. And September 11th, it started the other direction. The really worrying thing is that the intensity of resource scarcity that climate change will bring about could make those politics only more inevitable. Right. Because if you really do believe that, you know, our agricultural yields are shrinking, our water is disappearing, et cetera, et cetera, it's a lot harder to have a positive sum view of how you relate to another country in the world and much easier to think there's X amount of resources out there. I better get mine before they get theirs. Right. And that's why a lot of the people, even the, the climate change believers I talk to say, well, yeah, I want to do as much as I can for climate change for the world while also protecting my family. Yeah. yeah and that whole idea. Of, and I understand they want to protect their family and build something or get food in the base. I don't know what they're thinking. It's like, oh, so your family's going to be good for a couple of months, you know? I just, <laughs> I, what are I you thinking? It, yeah, I mean, I find all that really depressing for a number of reasons, um, the political reason, but even just practically speaking, like, I do feel, and I may be a little optimistic about this, but I do feel <clears throat> that though the world at three degrees, at four degrees, at five degrees looks hellish, people will still be living at that time, we will still have a civilization. It will be suffering. It will be full of more pain than we have today. Probably amounts of pain and suffering that we would not want to conscience looking at it now. But people will still be living at that point. And the idea that like the whole thing's gonna fall apart such that you need to like build a bunker, that just right. seems so get your shotguns foolish. and your batteries, you know. The important impacts are shared. The important impacts are if we have a permanent Great Depression. If we're dealing with twice as much war, if we're dealing with tropical, health, you know, tropical diseases that are flying everywhere throughout the world because but mosquitoes are now right. everywhere. And tornadoes is a constant fact in the Midwest. And hurricanes one after the other after the other. As we've seen already, 500 years hitting Houston. They've hit Houston three times in the last three years. 500-year storms. Th those, those costs are shared. It is not that civilization has already collapsed in the face of them. And I really don't feel personally that it will. But... Our collective experience of the world will be impoverished in all these ways. And so our responsibility is social and political in response. Like, yes, you want your child to do well, but like your, your child's not going to be fighting off zombies because of climate change. That's not what's going to happen. What's going to happen is that you're, they're growing up in a world where there's very little hope for the future and where politics have become really zero sum. And we're dealing with many more deaths and many more, much more suffering than we have today. Again, that imposes, I think, a collective responsibility rather than an individual responsibility. And that's why I think of all the things that anyone can do, it really is politics that's the most important path forward. And it's also the best psychic treatment. If you feel in despair, if you're falling, feeling like you're falling apart, then the best thing you can do is to try to make progress and engage. And politics is the best answer there, too. You've been on Team Human. Our guest today was journalist and author of The Uninhabitable Earth, David Wallace-Wells. You can find out more about David and all our guests at teamhuman.fm. You can also subscribe to and support the show, find links to our Reddit, subscriber-only content, and more. Team Human is now produced and edited by Luke Robert Mason. Our associate producer is Josh Chapdelin. Our show is produced at Queens College Laboratory for Digital Humanism, and our favorite bread comes from Green Rabbit Bakery in Vermont. You've been on Team Human. 
our last best hope for peeps. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.